uh, going to start a brand new series called The Path of the Exile. And I know it sounds like the latest Star Wars movie, but it's not, okay? It's, it's uh, what we're going to be dealing with here. And, and uh, I believe this is a pastoral, kind of a prophetic type message. It's a message that honestly, there's some messages you want to preach as a pastor, and there's some messages you don't want to preach as much, okay? So this is kind of the ones that I don't really want to preach as much, but I know it's an important one, and you'll see why, because I'm going to get into some things I normally don't deal with uh, here at church. And so um, I, I just pray that you have open ears and open hearts to what God wants to speak today. And we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to start right off in verse 1. We may walk through it through this series, but 1 Peter chapter 1 Verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And when I first started to read that, I thought of the word apostle and dispersion and all these foreign lands, these foreign countries. And immediately my thought went to the mission field. And I started to think about the mission field. Like basically Peter is like a missionary to this mission field in this faraway place. When I hear those words and exiles and foreign countries and all sorts of things like that, I think of the mission field, I think of it as a faraway place that we go to. And for me personally, I don't have to try to get in somebody else's brain about that experience because I've experienced that many times myself, where I've been on the mission field, or maybe we think of the mission field as missionary, like trips that we go on and then come back from, or missionaries that we send away. And so I have experience personally with that, so I don't have to think too far about that. But I, I want to share two stories. And in these two stories are what I believe many of us define the mission field as, okay? And so the first story is when I was 15 years old. My parents had moved us to the border of Texas and Mexico, and we were missionaries into Mexico for a year. At 15 years old, we would take, I remember uh, taking people in, we would take groups in, and we would minister, and we would, we would actually smuggle food in, and smuggle uh, um, clothes, and whole church buildings. We had this floor of this bus that we took out, put all the lumber for a church building. I don't know why we were doing this, but we were doing, and, and we put it in there, and put the floor back so that no one knew that the, all the lumber was there, and drove across the border many times, and, and just did a bunch of crazy stuff, and, and we would go into these places that weren't very, that, I mean, it was poverty and there were shacks and dirt and mud and just, it was, and we would go and we would set up uh, this, uh, this whole stage and we would go and, and uh, do a whole service. And I, I remember at 15 years old, I was leading worship in Spanish at, at these meetings and we would give an altar call and hundreds and hundreds of people would get saved in this, I mean, it was this extreme poverty place where we were going. And we'd had this big feed, we called it, where we'd feed people. And, and it was a crazy experience as a 15-year-old to be going through all of that. Uh, but there was this one experience that year that stood out above all the others. And we were going to take a group of people in to do a service. But this time, we weren't going to the regular places that we were going to. We, we went to the city dump in Matamoros, Mexico. And you say, well, why did you go to the city dump? If you're going to go minister to people, it's because people were living there. And I remember pulling in and the stench from all of the, there was piles of rotten food, and piles of everything. And the stench as we pulled in was almost unbearable. And as a 15 year old, I remember looking out and seeing people living in this dump. And it was shocking. And the one that shocked me the most was I saw this little 
teepee-like thing. It was about this tall, and it was made out of trash bags, and it, it, was, it was a little boy's home. And I, I saw him come in and come out of that, and I was just shocked by what I was seeing. So we set up, and we had the meeting, and we started to do worship. We started to do our thing. We gathered a crowd of people, and about halfway through our meeting, half the crowd ran away. And we're like, what, what's happening? And we finally realized that half of them ran away because a new garbage truck came into the dump and was dumping fresh garbage. And we saw them literally run over there, pot, dig through the garbage, put food right in their mouth or whatever it was, right out of the garbage. And I was looking at this experience and trying to make sense of it, you know? That's story one. So a lot of times we think of the mission field as extreme lack. And believe me, I saw extreme lack. Story number two, I was 21 years old. And I was leading, my, I became a youth pastor. I was leading my very first missions trip by myself. And we went to Puebla, Mexico. And I was the oldest person on the trip. So parents were kind of crazy sending them with me. But, but we had the favor of God on us. So it all worked out. But, but uh, we went and we, we flew into Puebla and our host church picked us up and we stayed on the campus of this church. And so our host uh, took our, our team around and we, we helped an orphanage for a while. We built some stuff and cleaned up some stuff and did some skits and presented the gospel. But one day we were taken about two or three hours away, if I remember correctly, and they pulled us up. Now, remember, I've got just a bunch of teenagers, teenage, like blonde teenage girls, you know, who don't look like they fit in, right? And, it was, and, and I'm the oldest person. And they take us and they pull us up to this prison in Mexico. I didn't know what was gonna happen. I didn't know this was on the agenda. We show up and we have to, I mean, it's the real deal. It's a men's prison in Mexico, and we have to go through this whole thing where one at a time we have to go into this chamber where they, they make sure you're not carrying anything or do anything. They pat you down and then they send you one at a time, go through. I mean, it was the real deal. So imagine this with me. We walk out into this open courtyard type thing. Two-story buildings, look like apartment buildings with balconies all over the place. And it was just open. And men are just roaming around. I mean, these are criminals that, that have been put in prison, but they're just roaming around free in this courtyard and living as if in his apartment complex this completely fenced in. And here we are. They led us into this spot. They back us into this, this cul-de-sac type area of buildings. And imagine this with me. Now our back's up against, there's a building behind me. There's, there's uh, balconies all around. And everyone's gathered. All these guys gather in all the balconies. And we are pushed right up against in this, this cul-de-sac of this prison. And then the prison guards seem to disappear. And we're just standing there. And about this time, my host leans over to me and he says, you might want to pray because like three weeks ago, there was a riot in this very prison and many people died. How many of you guys know I prayed? <laughs> I'm sitting there praying. So we're doing these skits and I'm looking at everything. There's nothing I can do. I'm responsible for all of this. We're in, I mean, legitimate situation where this could be a dangerous situation. I mean, this is not me making it up or make, this was danger. Story number two, extreme danger. I think that's how most people would define the mission field. Extreme lack or extreme danger. Maybe both. Here's a question. How do you define the mission field? Because all of us have this idea of what the mission field is. And we think maybe like my initial thought about Peter that it's 
possibly a faraway place, but for sure it has extreme lack or extreme danger to qualify as the mission field. Now, Barna did a study recently, and I'll put it up on the screen, but 82% of believers don't know what the Great Commission is. Now, technically, about that, it breaks down this way. 51% acknowledge never heard of it. 31% responded either, I'm not sure, or I've heard of it, but I can't tell you what it means. Now, don't you know this is a problem, right? Because too many people don't even know what the mission is or what the mission field is. Because we've defi- I believe we've misdiagnosed what the mission field is. If you're wondering what the Great Commission is, by the way, it's found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, because we're not going to be a part of the 82%. I'll just tell you that right now, okay? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the mission. Preach the good news. If we define the mission field as danger or lack, we've missed it. We've missed the mission field. And, and if we have misdiagnosed or misidentified the foreign mission field as danger or lack, how much more have we probably missed the mission field that's right in front of us here? Because do you realize you are living on a mission field? You are living on a mission field. If we don't have a proper understanding of what the Great Commission is, we will miss the mission. The mission field is simply preaching the gospel so that people might hear and be saved. That's That's where the mission field is. Let me define it this way. The mission field is not physical danger or physical lack, even though it may include some of those. The mission field is anywhere where there is spiritual danger and spiritual lack. And I promise you, as you drove in this morning, there are many people in spiritual danger and spiritual lack. You passed thousands upon thousands of people on your way here. But if we've misdiagnosed it, and we think it's a faraway place, or we think that it's physical danger or physical lack, then we may be missing the mission field right in front of us. And can I tell you that most people in this room are called to faithfully live out this mission field. You've been called here for a reason. God placed you in this place for a reason. It's not like God put everybody in all these places on the planet and then decided, okay, well, everybody needs to rearrange because <laughs> I placed you all in the wrong spots. Many of us are called right here to be faithful to the mission field right in front of us. But if we think it's a faraway place or we think it's danger or lack, we may miss it. And I think the problem is we may be missing or misunderstanding where we live. What do you mean by that, Sean? Well, what I mean by that is if we go, we start off in the first verse of First Peter. Let's go all the way to the end of the book. First Peter 5, 13 and 14. It says, she who is at Babylon, who is she? When, he, when Peter's talking about this, if you look at other translations, you see the context. She is the church. So we can read it this way. The church at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you, to all, to all of you who are in Christ. The church at Babylon. Now here's the problem with that statement. When Peter wrote this, Babylon didn't exist anymore. 
So what is he communicating to us? He's communicating a very important principle that I think many of us have forgotten or maybe many of us have misdiagnosed actually where we live. See, too many of us, and let me just say it this way, too many of us are fighting for a culture that gets set up with rules and systems. I'll put it up on the screen. Too many of us are, are fighting for a culture with rules and systems that make us feel Christian simply by living in it rather than becoming followers of Jesus regardless of it. It's almost as if we think our job is to live as Jews in Jerusalem in the Old Testament where we create a system that the rules and systems and laws all make us followers of God simply by being in that culture. And that's where most people are. Can you see why I didn't necessarily want to preach this message today? But I'm going to anyway. See, so many of us, we, we think we've maybe misdiagnosed where we live. And that's not what, what Peter would, would say to us. He would say, you're not living as Jews in Jerusalem in old school, Old Testament, where the whole culture and everything was designed to make you Christian. You're actually, you're actually exiles. You're living in Babylon. You're exiles. Now, I saw this really cool video that helped me understand this even greater. I think it'll help you too, so let's watch. In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust, take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect. But instead, they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being. But in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So, for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right. This is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice. But they do it nonviolently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles, but don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? 
Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime, but then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile, waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now, some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. Right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. So we are more like exiles in Babylon than we are Jews in Jerusalem. But so many of us, maybe we've misunderstood that. And so we don't really see where we live as a mission field in the same sense as maybe what we should. And so I can say this way, I put up an article a few weeks ago, but the suburbs, which is where most of us live, are not a second-rate mission field. This is the mission field. We just have to wake up to the mission, the great commission that God has put right in front of us because he's placed us right where he wants us to be for a reason. I can say it this way. This isn't our home. This isn't Jerusalem. So we have to rethink our mission, rethink our life in light of the kingdom of God, in light of the great commission, in light of what God has done. The fact is we live in two different worlds at the same time. The Bible says we live in, but not of. In fact, not just the Bible. Jesus said we live in the world, but not of the world. In John chapter 17, verse 14, it says, I have given them your word. This is Jesus talking. And he said, and and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. You realize you are not of the world. You are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So God isn't trying to create this thing where you get out of the world, but rather that you keep them from the evil one. 
because you live in Babylon. And they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus is sending us into this world. Jesus is sending us into our Babylon. And I could say it this way. We're not called to try to change the place where we are into old school Jerusalem, but rather be a light pointing towards the new Jerusalem that is to come. We're not supposed to be so consumed with systems and regulations and rules to try to create a culture that makes us feel Christian simply by living in it, but rather be the light regardless of it. Now, I'm going to even get, if I haven't got, got a little bit in your backyard yet, let, let me just get there real quick, okay? You guys mind if I get there real quick? Because I can. It's part of a gift that I have. It's just, it's awesome. Uh, in fact, I'm not going to let... I'm not going to do it. I'm going to let a guy named Brady Boyd do it because he's a pastor out of New, uh, New Life Church in Colorado Springs. I like him a lot. And he, he said this. He said, in our day, we have so merged our spiritual beliefs with our political beliefs that we can no longer tell the difference between the two. Case in point, when we can no longer see the good in someone because they disagree with his or her political stance, we know we've crossed the point of no return. We better throw it in reverse and fast. Can I tell you, we have to live differently if we are going to be the light of Jesus in this world. We have to live differently if we're going to be the light of Jesus in the world. You say, well, well, yes, but we're losing our rights. If we don't fight for our rights, shouldn't we fight for freedom? Shouldn't we fight for things that make uh, it easier and better for Christianity and for Jesus to flourish in a culture? Shouldn't we fight for those things and contend for those things? Sure, we should. We, we should fight for those things that are right. We should do what we can to, to create an environment for the gospel to flourish. But here's the warning. If you're known more by your political stance than you are as a follower of Jesus, you've missed it. You've missed it. And if, if the world that is watching believers just see sides, political sides, and trying to put God to an agenda, we have missed it. Because here's the truth. When people look at us, they should see Jesus. They should see Jesus. And, and, and God, let me just say it this way. God is not a Republican. I don't know if you figured that out. God's not a Democrat. I don't know if you figured that out or not. God is not a liberal. God is not a conservative. God is not whatever label you want to put on him. And so if you're known more by that, let me just say it this way. You're known by something God is not. So, so we have to really, what I'm saying is, when you are a believer and you're a follower of Jesus, the two options you, you have are kingdom of heaven and kingdom of darkness. That's what you have. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of darkness. Aaron, I need you to amen me again because I'm not getting it from anybody else, okay? Yeah. But we get those two options. Let me say it this way. What's worse than losing our rights in America? What's worse? And I'll tell you as believers, here's what's worse. What's worse than losing our rights is losing our witness. And I'm afraid we're in danger of losing our witness for Jesus because we're so consumed. We're so consumed. 
And we have to make a decision. Are we going to let Jesus shine bright? We're going to say, let Jesus shine bright. Because in the kingdom of God, it's not about rights. It's about love. There's, there's several issues that talk about this. Paul talks about this. They were, they were fighting about who could eat what and who could eat meat offered to idols or who could eat or who could drink. And people are saying, well, this is our right. We could do this. There's nothing wrong with that. And Paul says, nope, doesn't matter what your rights are. What matters is love. Another example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We think of it as a love chapter because it's used as wed, at weddings and it sounds very poetic, but we forget that, that it's sandwiched right in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 for a reason because it's not about a wedding, it's, it's trying to tell us about rights versus love. Because some people are saying, well, well you know, we have a, a, a gift and I need to use it and I need to use it. And Paul says, wait, 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 wait. Let's, forget, let, let's not forget that the reason why we're doing this is motivated by love. If you don't have love, it means nothing. I don't have this in the, in the notes, but I have it in my, in my Bible. And I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, it says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver my, up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. What is Paul saying? He's saying it's not about rights. It's about love. See, in the kingdom of God, it's relationship over rights. It's people over policies. That's what it is in the kingdom of God. Now, we're supposed to be known by love. We're supposed to live as if it's morning at midnight. So even though there's darkness around, we're not, so, we're not supposed to be so consumed with the darkness as we are just to let our light shine Right, and I, I really believe that we have to be careful this year and it's important for us as believers this year not to get caught up because how many of you guys know there's gonna be a lot of getting caught up over this next year. We've gotta be very careful not to get caught up in this side or that side, but be caught up in the kingdom of God and begin to proclaim that message loud and clear. To live as morning at midnight. Now, are we supposed to be agents of change? transforming cities, transforming nations. Are we supposed to? Yes, we are. Are we supposed to be a franchise of heaven like I've preached before where, man, I'm a walking heaven franchise that, that wherever I go, heaven goes. And wherever I touch, I hope that heaven touches. Yes, we are supposed to do that. But I want you to hear me clearly. The way we do that is, is more important than what we do. That's what 1 Corinthians says. The way you do it is more, and we, if we are gonna be light in a dark place this next year, we are going to have to think differently than we have in the past. We're gonna to have to live differently than we have in the past. We're gonna to have to portray ourselves differently. We're gonna to have to have a heart transplant on the inside if we're gonna live differently. And I, and I saw this, this uh, video clip of this guy who really wanted to transform a city, and so he he began to think differently about it. It inspired me. I think it'll inspire you. Let's watch. Recently, I've really been uh, blown away by the work of, uh, it's actually an urbanist named Jan Gell. He's Danish. Uh, just incredible. Not only that he, he's an architect by training, an urban planner, but he's probably in his, almost 80 now, spent the last 50 years not only teaching his students these brilliant ideas of how we bring people together, but then instituting them. They would send his students out to do research. They partnered with the cities from Copenhagen and actually got them to do things. I'll give you one example. They had a big business street downtown, shock full of cars. 
because the city's very old, they had all of these squares, which were gathering points way back in the day, but had all become parking lots. Literally, they were used for parking cars. This is the 1960s. He talked with the city and he said, what if we closed down a section of the main street and just made it for walking? And they said, well, of course we couldn't do that. Uh, businesses would go out of business and so on. He said, okay, let's do, let me do an experiment. We will record how many people are going by, going into shops. We'll do that. And if you would agree to just close it for three months, we'll record how many people are going by once you close it off to cars. And then we can see what happens. So somehow the city agreed to do that. And what they found is it went from 40,000 people going up and down this busy street. When they closed it to cars, it grew to over 100,000. And today it's 250,000. So it's a quarter of a million people. What they found was people were attracted to that, a space where cars couldn't interrupt them doing their shopping. And then if they could come there when they're walking, they noticed the shops. And they were much more likely to go into shops and spend time. And they're interacting. And then new businesses came. People started putting out sidewalk cafes because there's so many people. People like to sit and look at people. And it created this hubbub. So now they have the world's longest shopping street called Stroyol, so a mile long in US terms. And there are no cars, but it goes beyond that. Now basically the whole system of their center has no cars at all. It's all walking streets. And so I'm, what intrigues me about him is not just that he had ideas, but was able to transform a city with them. So people were attracted to different. If we blend in, we won't transform a city. If we don't look any different, we won't transform a city. But if we turn the light on, anything's possible. Anything's possible. So are we supposed to do that? Yeah, we're supposed to be a franchise of heaven. We're supposed to transform our city. We're supposed to transform wherever we, we land, wherever our mission field is. But it, to do that, we have to think Differently, We have to do it a little bit differently. And again, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 demonstrates that for us. So let me say something really strong that may, may uh, ruffle some feathers, and that's okay. Can I just tell you that the goal of Christians in America today and this year, the goal, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian in America today, the goal of Christians in America this year is not to elect the right presidents or pass the right laws. It's to live as light. Live as light. <laughs> hey, guys, I got God on my side with this message. You guys, I, I don't know. That's awesome. Tom couldn't handle it. He just went out. He's just gone. <laughs> but it's not to live. It, it's to live as light. It's, it's not to elect the right presidents or pass the right laws. It's to live as light. And I'm afraid we are in on the... We're on the edge of forgetting that. Because how many of you guys know Jesus is still on the throne no matter what happens this year? Jesus can still use us to reach a lost and dying world no matter what happens this year. So let's be careful. Let's be careful how we live. Let me, let me say it this way. If you hold the conviction, I'm going to say even stronger things. If you hold the conviction that abortion is a sin, that it should be illegal, and you want to, and you work, and you work, and you get it all the way to the Supreme Court, and you're, you get them to overturn the laws to make that illegal in the land, and you've done all these things for your conviction and for, what, you know, for good, and then the whole time you've done it, you've despised people on the other side of the issue. First Corinthians says, meant nothing. Let's go on the other side. 
You feel like Donald Trump? Well, I'm really getting in it now, right? <laughs> you feel like Donald Trump not, should not be elected, reelected because of whatever you know, immigration policy or the way he's treated women or what, whatever policies that, that you have a conviction about? And you work all this next year to get him not elected and he, he doesn't get elected and you feel like you fulfilled a conviction of yours? But if you did it the whole time and you despise people on the other side of the issue, nothing. What I'm trying to say is this. It's not about sides. It's about love. And too many of us have made our mission field into a minefield where we're trying to set off mines for the other side or try to remove mines to make it safer for Christianity. And that's never what Jesus told us to do. See, too many people are raising fists when we ought to be raising the banner of love. Now, I'm not naive in that. I'm not just saying just love everybody and everything will be okay. I understand. But I also understand Scripture. And we have to decide whether we really believe the Scriptures where it says it's not against flesh and blood. People aren't the problem. Spiritual issues are the issue. And so without love, the Bible says it didn't matter a whole lot. It didn't matter for anything. So you want to change the nation, you want to change the city, you want to change the landscape around you, you you don't do it by throwing rocks at people. You do it by throwing ropes. And I've said this before, and I've shared this story before. Many of you are familiar with it, but I'll have the worship team come back up at this time so we, we can get ready to close out. But there's a story in the Bible of this woman who was caught in adultery. And... Uh, she gets caught in adultery and she's thrown at Jesus' feet and everybody's trying to, to, you know, the law says that she needs to be stoned. So they throw her at Jesus' feet in John chapter eight, verse five. It says, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And they said this because they were trying to trick Jesus and trap him into this. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, go. And from now on, sin no more. If Jesus in that moment would have picked up a rock and thrown it right at her head and killed her right there, no one would have said anything about it and it would have been legal at the time. And so so many of us are in our current culture, which isn't the kingdom of heaven, by the way, but there's some things, some behaviors and some ways that our culture acts that we think, well, it's just the way the culture is. But that's not what Jesus did. He threw a rope, not a rock. He lifted her up and he said, be free from sin. The only way he could do that, listen, you cannot minister on a mission field if you don't have a heart for the people. And if this is our mission field, where's your heart? So I'm, trying, I'm saying a challenging word today, but I hope it's also an encouraging word to know that we can transform our, our city, but it comes by being light in darkness. The problem is when we look at people on the other side, and you can say whatever side you, ha- you have, we think, you know, this is the good side, and this is the bad side. And we think if we could just make the bad side good or make the bad side go away, then things would be good again. But how many of you guys know there is no one here 
that's all the way good. No one here that's, you, you can't put it in those terms. So we think, okay, well, I'm not 100% good, but where I am, we kind of look at it as a sliding scale. Like where, well, surely I'm over here towards the good, the better side, and the people on the other side, they've got to be over on that side. And if I work a little harder, I can get even good, more good. And maybe if I could get the bad people to come over onto the good, then everything would be good again. But the problem is that's not how it works because God does not see in terms of good and bad. God sees in terms of life or death. And see, the the only reason you're in Christ is because the grace of God took you from death to life, not because you were so good. It's not because you were so right. It's because of the righteousness of God in Christ. It's a gift to you. You didn't earn any of it. I didn't earn any of it. So the issue isn't trying to make bad people good. It's trying to, to bring the light so that dead people can be made spiritually alive. And everywhere around us, we have opportunity where there's people in spiritual danger, spiritual death that can be made alive. And, and I, I'm telling you, the way we are going, I'll tell you one thing that's been on my heart this year is I wanna see more people get saved this year, more people get baptized this year than we ever have as a church. I can tell you in the first couple services this weekend, we've already seen 10 or 15 people respond to say, yes, I wanna follow Jesus. But the only way we're gonna see that is when our light shines bright and when they look at us, they don't see a political party, they don't see a definition that's outside of, they see Jesus, that's what they see. We're not gonna do that perfectly, but I think we can do it better as we lean in on his grace. Would you guys stand up with me? And if you would, if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment, I wanna talk to some people just real quick. If you're here and you're, as your head's bowed and your eyes closed, maybe you, You've never started to follow Jesus. You figure if, if you showed up at Jesus' feet, he would take that rock and throw it at you because of the amount of sin that you've done. But can I tell you that, the, that Jesus, he throws ropes, not rocks. And if you have a, a pile of sin that you've accumulated, guess what, he's throwing a rope right down to you. He wants to lift you up and set you free. He did this because he, he died on the cross for our sins. Your, your sin kept you back from God, but Jesus took your place and he died in your place. He rose from the dead. That's how he can give us the power to live a life free from sin. And maybe you've never said yes to following Jesus. Can I just encourage you today, if you're hearing the Holy Spirit knock, on, you're feeling that little knock on the door of your heart. Jesus is saying, I wanna come in. Maybe you're here today and at one point you were following Jesus, but you know for whatever reason, you're not on the road. Maybe you feel more like the prodigal son who you drifted away from the father's house. And there's a part of you that feels like the only way I can get back to God is if I work my way back and if I could somehow serve my way back. Can I just tell you the grace of God doesn't work that way. If you're the prodigal today, all you do is you turn around and his arms are open wide. Maybe you're here today and you don't know where you stand with Jesus. Can I just encourage you that before you leave this place, you can transfer from spiritual death to spiritual life. You can become a brand new creation, as the Bible calls it. it. It's like you have brand new spiritual DNA. And so with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to give an opportunity just to know if we need to take a moment out of this service to pray for you. If you say, Pastor Sean, that's me. I need to, I need to start following Jesus. I need to give my heart to Jesus. I need to come back to the Father's house. I need to, to, to say yes to Jesus and to start to live for him. 
Would you just lift your hand up so I can see it and so God can see it more importantly, just as an act of faith right now. Just go ahead and lift up your hand. All right, hands all over the building, all over. All right, see those hands back there. One more moment. If, if, if you haven't said yes to Jesus, all right, back there. What we're gonna do is I'm gonna pr- help, help you pray and what we're simply gonna do is I'm gonna give you the words and let you borrow words, but you gotta supply faith. Just supply the the faith in this moment. And we're just gonna simply talk to God. Maybe you've never done this before. It's really easy. We're just gonna simply talk to Jesus. And by doing this, we're really, the Bible says if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, we'll be saved. So let's do that right now. Everybody say this with me. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking my place. I believe you washed away my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. Right now, I repent of my ways and I turn towards you. I surrender my life to follow you. I receive your grace by faith right now in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you so much for those who have surrendered their lives to you today, those who have said yes to you, Lord, I pray, we bind right now the enemy that would try to lie to them on the way out that said that nothing happened or that you've got to earn your way back. We bind that thought right now, that lie from the enemy right now. And I pray for revelation of the Holy Spirit, that they have this revelation that they are a brand new creation, that the old is gone, that the new has come, and that today is a brand new day in you, in Jesus' name. Come on, let's give Jesus some praise and let's worship him one more time.